Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in in Bethlehem and in all that region that were two years old or under, according to the time they had ascertained from the wise men. Then Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted, because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, good morning. The kids are dismissed for their class. They'll be about their teachers in the back there, the blue lanyards, and that's walkers on up to second grade can head on back to that class. Walkers on up to second grade. And for you who are staying with me, you get the joy and pleasure of staying in here, you can turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to cover the entire chapter today, uh, a little bit of an experiment as I had Ben read the entire chapter uh, beforehand. The reason why we did that because I want you to be familiar with the story that we're going to talk about today in Matthew chapter 2. But also, uh, that way, I don't have to read every single verse while I'm up here, but you can just follow around with me, and we'll read verses uh, throughout the chapter as we make our way through this. This is a, another example of maybe familiar and forgotten as we look at Matthew chapter 2, and we talk about the wise men and Herod. 
the, the wise men are, are so interesting because they make it into just about every nativity scene that we see. They're really familiar to us. And, but yet there's actually just a lot about them that we probably think we know that we don't actually know. Like you probably would say, like, there's three wise men. Maybe. If we look closely at Matthew chapter 2, it never tells us how many wise men there are. There are three gifts. And so tradition kind of became that there must have been three wise men because there's three gifts. But that's not what we know. What we know is that there was a group of wise men and it tells us that there's three and they give Jesus out of their treasures an abundant amount of gifts. We often assume that they were there the night that Jesus was born. Probably not. You're going to read through in this story. It's it's actually when Herod sends out and, and does a horrible thing and has every male child in Bethlehem killed that's two years and younger because... He doesn't know when the wise men were there. It's somewhere in this kind of two-year period. It's not necessarily on the same night that we see. We, sometimes we sing songs like We Three Kings of Orient are. We don't know if they're kings or not. The Bible doesn't tell us that they were kings. The Bible tells us that they were wise men. And that's a really, really vague term. We don't see that anywhere really else. We don't, we don't really even know what that means. It's just there. It just exists here in this chapter. We're just told, hey, there's these wise men and they follow a star. And they come and worship Jesus. And there's all these things that may or may not be true, but, but we kind of fill in the gaps in our imaginations or maybe movies that we see a lot of times that depict these things. Particularly for me, I think I reach back to my childhood. Movies that were maybe shown back when I was in a kid's class at one point, And I kind of fill in the gaps of Christmas. And, and the Bible just doesn't do that. The Bible's actually kind of vague in some of these, these areas. And, and so what do we do? What do we do when we come to a passage of Scripture that we say, I'm not really sure— what is about these wise men? Well, what I would say is what you always want to do in the Bible when you're unsure of what it's saying is you want to start with what you know it is saying. And that's what we want to do today. We want to actually focus on who this story is all about. See, the story of the wise men isn't about the wise men. It's not about Herod and it's not about Mary and Joseph. But this story, like every story that we find in the Bible, is about Jesus. That's who this story is about. And that we have a tremendous amount of clarity on. We know exactly who this story is telling us about and who he is. And that's what the story is all about. And that's what we want to look at today is who Jesus is. And we're going to see three things as we walk through Matthew chapter 2. That Jesus is king, that Jesus is unstoppable, and that Jesus is not always what he seems. So that Jesus is king, Jesus is unstoppable, and Jesus is not always what he seems. So first, I want to look and take a look at what it means for Jesus to be king. And we're going to kind of look at those first 12 verses. So if you're following along your Bibles, go ahead and follow along with me. And I'm just going to grab a couple of verses as we kind of walk through this, and I'll fill in the gaps here as we do that. So, so what we want to see first is that Jesus is king. And so Matthew tells us that after Jesus was born, that in Bethlehem of Judea, that there were these wise men from the east, and that's all we know about them. And they come to Jerusalem, and they're seeking a king because they have seen this star, and they know that a king is being born. And these wise men do what you would do if you were looking for a king. You're looking for royalty? You go to some royalty. And you go to the current king of Jerusalem. You say, hey, I hear a new king's been born. Where's he at? And so they go to Herod. Herod is not a Jewish person. He's actually uh, somebody that the, the Romans have, have put in charge of this region. And what they say to Herod is, they go to Herod and they say, hey, where's the new king at? There's a king that's been, that's been born here. And Herod doesn't know what they're talking about. Herod is unsure. And the wise men, they come and, and, and they say, 
they told him, in Bethlehem and Judea, or excuse me, and I didn't, get, oh, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Right there in verse two. For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. So this what's interesting is you have this man who's supposed to be king over the Jews and he's ignorant to the fact that there's been a king born in his midst. It, it takes these people from the east to come and tell him. They say, hey, we've seen this star and we don't know what it is. These foreign kings like, apparently are some kind of astrologers. We don't, even, we don't even know what that means. The Bible doesn't tell us what it means that they see a star, but they see this star, they come and they follow him and they say, we know that a king has been born and Herod has no idea what they're talking about. But they know that he's this king and we want to come and we want to worship him. And Herod, in his cluelessness, he calls these Jewish leaders, these chief priests and scribes, and he's asking them, hey, where's the king at? These guys from, from the east are telling me that there's a king born here and he wants to know what they are. And what's really shocking about this is they know the answer. In verse 5, it says, they told him, these chief priests and scribes, these experts of the Old Testament, come and they say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet." They know the prophet so well that when Herod asked them, where is this king be born? They know exactly where it is. And they quote from Micah chapter 5. And they say, you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And even this is fulfilling another Old Testament prophecy. In the book of Genesis chapter 49, Jacob has these, these 12 sons, and he's blessing these sons at the end of their life, and he gets to Judah, his fourth son. And in Judah, he tells him, from you, the scepter, the ruler, will not pass. The, the rule, my rod that rules, will stay with you forever. And that's what we see in Jesus, that Jesus is the king that comes and fulfills that. What's really shocking about this is that they know exactly where Jesus is supposed to be and they know about the king that he's supposed to be because that prophecy from Micah says that he is a king that will rule over you but he will shepherd my people. And all throughout the Old Testament, if you were a good reader of the Old Testament, you would know that this king who has come to shepherd his people would do so in a way that's filled with compassion, filled with mercy. He would not be like the bad shepherds of Israel that have come all throughout. And we know that later Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And he says, I'm going to lay my life down for my sheep. And all this while, they're being ruled by this man named Herod, who we're going to see is totally, completely evil. He is a horrible ruler. And here they've been told, hey, the king that your Old Testament scriptures have been promised about, these wise men from the east, they know that he's here. Where is he at? And you know what they do? Nothing. They don't do anything. They don't go worship him. They don't go seek him. They don't do it. And they know. They have the knowledge. They know where he's at. Actually, all they really do is they sell him out. They sell Jesus out to this evil king and they tell him exactly where he's at. These men are so cowardly and so passive that instead of going and doing what these wise men for the east are going to do, they're going to come and they're going to travel, follow a star so that they might worship the king of the Jews. They don't worship their own king. They sell him out to a false king who's ruling in a stead that a foreign power has come and put over them. And that's what we have to see is that Jesus is king and that Jesus will be worshipped no matter what. Jesus is going to get his due no matter what happens, even when his own people ignore him, even when his own people have everything that they need to know where to go, to worship him, to do what is right and honorable, and they don't do what's right and honorable. 
Jesus, still being king, will guarantee that he's going to be worshipped. Watch what he does. I mean, this is totally amazing. In verse 9, And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and mirth. That's incredible. Jesus, God, is so committed to his worship that he'll literally move the heavens to ensure that it happens. He brings about this some kind of astronomical phenomenon that is really unexplainable, and it rests in such a way that these men are able to follow it, and it rests over the very house where Mary and Jesus are. So they might come and worship him. God is so committed to seeing his own glory that he will literally move the heavens when his own people fail to do what they are meant to do. And these men from the east, they might not know the Old Testament scriptures, but they know that when God moves the heavens, they need to worship And they give us such a wonderful example of what worship really is. It says they came and they opened up their treasures to him and gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You want to know what worship is? Worship comes from the word worth-ship. To pay something, it's worthiness, it's due, it's value. You want to worship Jesus? Open up your treasure, the things that you value and love. All throughout the book of Matthew, that's a theme, treasure. Those who who lay up their treasure in heaven will be the ones who find eternal life. Don't lay up your treasures here on earth, Jesus tells them. He he is constantly talking about treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in the field. It's something that he's talking about all throughout the rest of the book. And he's telling you the thing that you value, the things that you love are to become and laid at the feet of Jesus. So maybe that's material things like these wise men, and maybe it's the the gold, fragrances, and myrrh of your life. It's your materials. We, as Christians, should joyfully say, God, what is it you want with my home, my my car, my income, that I might lay it at your feet and worship you with it. But that's not the only things that we treasure. What what about my, my spouse? How can I love my spouse in a way, Lord, my life, my body, my kids, the things that I treasure and long for, how do I bring those things and lay them at your feet? Because I recognize as a Christian, Jesus, that you are king and that you demand and must be worshiped and that there's nothing that would stop it. In fact, this worship that we read about was told about hundreds of years beforehand. Hundreds of years. Like, listen to this. In Isaiah chapter 60, verses one through six, this is, this is awesome. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall overcome the earth, thick darkness, the peoples. Remember that hundreds of years of silence we talked about uh, last week before Jesus comes? But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. I don't think a star moving in heaven and resting upon him is that far of a stretch that his glory would be set upon him. And the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. These men from the east shall come following that light, that star. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They shall gather together. They shall come to you. Your son shall come from afar and your daughter shall be carried on the hip. 
Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you and the wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephath and those of Sheba shall come. And listen, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Hundreds of years in the making, hashtag boom nailed it. He is right there on the dime. God speaks to that prophet and tells us, my worship is coming. And here's what I want you to know. The story of Jesus' first advent is a glimpse. It is a glimpse of what's coming. We know at the end of the book, while we celebrate Lottie Moon and we see that video of the multitudes come, while we send out missionaries, because we are told, we are guaranteed that the nations are going to come around the throne of Jesus. They're going to worship him and they're going to bring all of their homage to him. All that they treasure and love is going to be laid at the feet of Jesus. Even reading that, you play out that story. I was laughing. Like my daughter came in on the hip today. I'm not a Jew. I'm the nations. You're the nations gathered around thousands of miles away from this event in Bethlehem. God having his way, making sure that he gets his due through a little tiny church in central Ohio. He's going to be worshipped. Nothing is going to stop it. In fact, we even see that in the life of Jesus happening again. When Jesus grows up and becomes an adult and he, and he heads his way toward the trosh, tro- cross and what we call the triumphant entry. Sorry, triumph and cross got mixed together there. I don't know what happened. They came together and, and Jesus enters into the city and the people gather around and listen to what they say in, in Luke nineteen thirty-eight. It said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That is a Christmas phrase. Glory in the highest. Read Luke chapter 2. It's what the angels say about him. The king has come. Glory in the highest. They're saying again at the end of the life of Jesus, praise, the king has come. Glory in the highest. And you know what the Pharisees and those religious leaders do then? The ones who ignored him at his birth? They look to Jesus and they say, you need to rebuke these people. Tell them to stop worshiping you. And Jesus says, if they don't worship me, these very stones will cry out and worship me. And we didn't plan this, but what an awesome song to sing right before the sermon. And heaven and nature sing. Nothing's going to stop him. Whether the stars in the sky have to be moved over the place of his birth, that the heavens and nature, whether the stones of the earth will cry out to him, they will sing and he will be worshipped. Jesus doesn't need you to worship him. You need to worship Jesus. Jesus is going to have his way because he is the one true king. And that's what the Christmas story announces to us. There's nothing that will stop the worship of Jesus. Nothing. And because he is God and because nothing will stop it, what we see is our second point is that Jesus is unstoppable. Looking at verses 13 there through 18, we can see that when they had departed, and, 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 and uh, the 
verse 12, it, it tells us that they, they get a dream. And so God is going to intervene in a series of dreams. And, and first is to the wise men. And the wise men are told, hey, don't go back to Herod because Herod was going to trick them. Herod did not actually desire to go and worship Jesus. Herod desired to go and kill Jesus. And so God intervenes for these wise men, but he interviews just at the right time. And so they don't go back to Herod and they trick Herod. And Herod is, is angry and he's frustrated about that. But even before that happens, an angel then appears to Joseph and another dream to Joseph. And he says this, rise, Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. This is so interesting. Matthew credits that, that prophecy, out of Egypt I have uh, called my son, to, to, to Jesus. But when you read Hosea 11.1, 1, which is where that's coming from, Hosea is actually talking about a past event for him. Hosea com- comes later in the Old Testament, and Hosea is pointing back to the Exodus. And he talks about how the people of Israel were enslaved by the Egyptians. We kind of talked about this last week in the Passover and what happens there. That, that they were enslaved by the Egyptians, and God delivered his people out of Egypt. And, and, and Hosea says, and out of Egypt I have called my son, I have called Israel. But then Matthew says, actually, hey, no, 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 that's, that's getting fulfilled in Jesus, which is really, really confusing, and it's kind of how Eastern literature works, and us Westerners, we don't always like the way that this works, but it's called uh, typology, is, is what that's called, and it, it's a type. And what Matthew is showing us is that all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus, that all of it is actually pointing to Jesus and Jesus alone, and, and we're going to see that as a theme in Matthew. He constantly is calling out these prophecies that Jesus is fulfilling, prophecies that a lot of times had immediate fulfillments in them in the moment. And so what we see is that, that Jesus is, is doing that and that Jesus is Israel. Because then in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is going to go out into the wilderness for 40 days and, and 40 nights. And in that, uh, that's going to represent G, the Israel being out in the wilderness for 40 years. And they're in there because they have failed in their temptation. But Jesus will be tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And what will he do? He'll succeed. He won't, he'll be tempted in every way yet without sin and he'll live the life that he was meant to live. And that's all of these prophecies, all that's happening is Jesus is fulfilling all of them. He's the fulfillment to all that's happening. And what we see there is, is that Jesus is, is, is being protected from Herod in this moment. So Herod is raising up and he's trying to stop Jesus. And God is intervening in a supernatural way to ensure that that is not going to happen. And he has Jesus go to Egypt for a time and then comes back to Jerusalem in Israel. But when that happens, Herod is, is just so consumed with wanting to destroy Jesus that when he can't find Jesus, he has every male child two years and younger because he calculates what the wise men had told them. He has them killed. He has something so horrible. Innocent toddlers, every male child in this small little village are killed. Probably would have been about 20 kids. Bethlehem is a small place. It's not a large place. Roughly 20 children killed. And our text tells us, Then was fulfilled but what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. The voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation for Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. 
because they are no more. And this is so hard because what we see is that Jesus is unstoppable, yet he doesn't stop this horrible thing from happening, the death of these kids. And we should ask, why? We as Christians need to look at the hard passages of Scripture and we've got to ask, why? Why would God not stop such a horrible thing from happening? And the difficulty is we really don't get an answer. We don't get an answer in this passage. We're just told what happens. And see, I think that's the reality of the already not yet nature of the gospel, of the lordship of Jesus and the unstoppableness of Jesus while he won't be stopped and he will live the life that he is destined to live. And that's why God must save him from Herod's wrath. We still live in a broken, broken world where sometimes evil is going to seem to have its way. And we will feel the extreme nature of that and all that will happen within that. I can remember one Christmas for me in particular. I had just come home from college, and I had learned so much because I went to a Bible college. I learned so much about the big story of the Bible, the things that I'm talking about this morning, things that somehow I had just missed in my childhood growing up, about how, this, how the Bible all fit together, how God was telling this grand story, and how I am a part of that, and I'm living in a part of that story. And, and I had come and I learned all about these things. And, and Christmas all of a sudden had this new meaning to me as I saw that, that it was the celebration of Jesus coming, being king, bringing peace on earth. But we know that, that peace is going to come through his death and resurrection. Peace by the slaughter of a man. And I remember this in particular Christmas, I had this little piece of Werther's candy, you know, the little caramel candies. And I was holding it in my hand and I... I'd eaten it, and I, I began to cry. I began to cry because that was a piece of candy that me and my grandpa used to enjoy together. But he had died. And my grandpa was a huge part of Christmas for me. My grandpa would dress up as Santa, and we would all go, and we would all just love it, and we'd enjoy it. We would go to their house every Christmas Eve. Every Christmas Eve, we would go to their house and celebrate Christmas together, and then we would all pack up and load up into our cars and go to a Christmas Eve service together, worship together, come back and do the whole Santa thing. I mean, it was this wonderful, wonderful thing. And I was there and I'm crying, but as I'm doing that, I've also these other things running through my mind because, because what I see is I know that death has been defeated. The death is destroyed in the death of Jesus and his resurrection. And that's what Christmas celebrates. Christmas celebrates the coming of the king who's going to make all things right. But we live here and now where things are still not yet made right. And that's what we have. See, we we can't ignore this part of the story because this part of the story is your part of the story too. You have parts of this story. Your Christmas is like mine. It's filled with joy and it's also filled with sadness. There are people that you've lost and difficulty that you've experienced and that you go through and there is weeping in Jerusalem and God's people And in some ways, it feels like we cannot be comforted. 
But what we want to know is that God has a purpose in all of our suffering, in all of our pain, and that's what Christmas celebrates. It celebrates the fact that one day this will end. The pain, the sorrow, it will be swallowed up into the life of Christ when his kingdom comes and there shall be no end. Joy to the world is actually not a Christmas song. When the author of that song wrote that song, he wrote the song envisioning the second coming of Christ. That's what he wrote. Joy to the world. Let heaven and nature sing. The cursed is no more. Far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That's what he's singing about. That's what he's calling us to. And we have to know that. But the only way you can know that is if you're willing to taste the bitterness of the reality of this life. See, even when evil is able to plunge a dagger into the hearts of the mothers of Bethlehem, Jesus is still king, reigning, ruling, and unstoppable. Jesus will have his way, even when all hope seems lost. That's the beauty. Proverbs 16, 4 assures us, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble, even wicked men like Herod were made to fulfill the purposes of God so the prophecy might be fulfilled that out of Egypt I have called my son and that Jesus might be the true and better Israel which would become the true and better church, you, the true and better people. We are then united in Christ and made within him. We need this to happen. And it is a joy that God's plans cannot be stopped But what we see in the difficulty of that story is that his methods may not be what we expect. You see, Jesus is not always what he seems. Looking at the last chunk of verses for us, verses 19 through 23. Herod dies. And behold, another angel comes. Joseph has the coolest dream life ever. I mean, this dude, I don't know what he gets to do, but that would be awesome. Another angel comes to Joseph in his dream and says to them, verse 20, it should be on the screen, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the, sought the child's life are dead. However, there is another one of Herod's son that's, that's reigning and ruling at this time. And so Joseph, out of a rightful, I think wise fear, decides, we'll go back to Israel, but maybe not to Bethlehem. And so he doesn't go back to that specific area, and they go to another place. They go to the district of Galilee, and they go to Nazareth. And the prophet tells us, or excuse me, Matthew tells us, and he says, and he went and lived in the city called Nazareth, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Want to know what's really interesting about that prophecy? Is there's nowhere in the Old Testament that looks anything like it. Nowhere in all the Old Testament looks anywhere like Jesus be calling a, 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 a Nazarene. There's some people who, who point to a Nazarite vow in the Old Testament, um, and we understand why that might get confusing in English. They kind of sound alike. They don't in Hebrew. They're like not even close. It's not even, not even close. And we definitely know Jesus wasn't a Nazarite because like Nazarites wouldn't drink wine and Jesus drank wine. He turned water into wine. He, he gets called a drunkard. There's all these things that happen. So like that's just probably not what's happening. But we have to see is we want to look really closely. It's so important that we look closely at our Bibles because where Matthew calls out Jeremiah or says spoken by the prophet, when he's talking about Hosea, he says something a little different in verse 23. He says, so it's spoken by the prophets, plural not just one prophet. 
See, I think what is happening in, the, in this text is, is Matthew is showing us what the prophets teach in general about Jesus might be proven true, that he would be called a Nazarene. See, Nazareth is not a place you want to be from. It's not the right hometown to have. It's not a cool place to be from. But what we see, it, where Bethlehem is like considered a royal city, people who know their Old Testament really know that, that Jesus ends up, even though he's born in Bethlehem, he grows up, his hometown is the wrong hometown. He's not what he seems. And I think it's helping us see that the prophets taught that. They told us Jesus isn't going to be what you expect him to be. Isaiah 53, 2 and 3 really help us see that. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one with whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. The prophet's teach that all throughout in the Old, Old Testament, that Jesus would be just not what they would really seem to be, that he'd be from Nazareth. And this is, what, again, which is not that great of a place to be from. And in the book of John, Philip, a disciple of Jesus, comes to Nathaniel, who will also be a disciple of Jesus. He's like, Nathaniel, Nathaniel, we found him. We found the Messiah. We found the Christ. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And you know what Nathaniel says? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's his immediate response. Like, that can't be right. But it is right. Nathaniel and everybody else could not be any more wrong. Not just something good came out of Nazareth. The best came out of Nazareth. That's what we want to see. The best thing came from where we didn't expect it to come. And listen, this is God's MO. God is constantly using the things that we don't think would happen. In 1 Samuel 16, talking about David, who, who Jesus would come from, God tells Samuel the prophet, go, and I want you to anoint one of Jesse's sons, and I'll show you who it is. And so Jesse goes and he gathers all of his sons, all of his sons except for the one it definitely would not be, the youngest son. And he just like leaves David out to tend the sheep. And he brings all of his other sons because they're way more impressive. And one by one, the Lord says, not him, not him. And we can even think that Samuel's really holy. Listen, Samuel doesn't even get it because Samuel sees Eliab and says, that's the guy. I mean, he's strong, he's tall, he's a good looking guy. Like that is the guy. And the Lord speaks to Samuel. In 1 Samuel 16, 7, he says this, Do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. So Jesus, not being what you would expect him to be, is in a weird way exactly what we would expect of the God of the Bible. Jesus is not the best-looking guy in the crowd. He is not like the movies portray him to be, dressed in white with flowing, beautiful blonde hair and gorgeous blue eyes and this, like, weird bathrobe sash thing, right? Like, that almost looks like a homecoming queen. I don't know. Like, that's not him. That's not what he would look like. He was a normal guy when it came to his appearance. The things that are special and wonderful about Jesus are not the things the culture would apprise in a person. The things that are special and wonderful about Jesus are the things within the heart of Jesus. That's what's wonderful and amazing about Jesus. And we need to learn something from that. That the things that are most often impressive are not necessarily the things 
God desires to use for his glory. That makes me very comforted because I'm not very impressive when you learn all that I am and all that I do. And the reality is, is you know that you aren't either. And yet God seeks to use those who are weak to display his own strength. And Jesus became weak for our sake so that we might experience the strength of God and his resurrecting power. Jesus is not what he seems. He constantly inspires and surprises us in ways we don't know. And that's how I want to wrap up this morning. See, in this text, in this text about Jesus, we learn who Jesus is, that Jesus is king.